This is Dan McGinn, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Berkus, best-selling author, speaker, and business school professor. And each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with outstanding thinkers and incredible doers. All of these interviews are designed to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date. Make sure you never miss an interview by joining our community. You can sign up at davidberkuscom slash podcast. Click on any of the episodes and there's signups right there or straight at davidberkus.com. You can also, if you're listening on your smartphone and you're in the United States, just text the word radio free to 33444. We'll send you some amazing resources that we can't really share in audio format on the podcast, including the Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. This is a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox. So again, to get all of that, just go to davidberkus.com slash podcast or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Now let's get started with this week's interview. So who are you and what do you do? So my name is Dan McGinn. I'm a senior editor at Harvard Business Review, and I've written a new book called Psyched Up, uh, How the Science of Mental Preparation Can Help You Succeed. And it's an awesome book. I mean, I had to listen to a ton of death metal and Eye, Eye of the Tiger and pace around while I was written. No, I'm totally kidding. Um, but, but I think, you know, there's a lot of sort of myths and misconceptions. I think I think sports drama movies have really sort of uh, given everybody this idea of what it is to get psyched up or try and get in the zone, et cetera. But a lot of people have this hurdle about like, well, that's great if I'm trying to win like my my town softball league championship trophy. But what about at the office? What about what I'm doing day by day? And this is one area where I love you actually, you opened the book with sort of a great case about how these things can be useful. You talked about a, a surgeon who's doing neuro, neurosurgery, if I'm correct, right? Or was it... I've heard That's was, correct. Yeah, cool. Doing doing neurosurgery, but using these sort of same um, pre pre game or pre fight rituals that a lot of people go through, and really help set the tone for it. There's a lot in the book that can be useful um, every single day that I want to get into. But I mean, tell tell us a bit about this guy because it's an f- absolutely fascinating story. The level of detail he puts into his OR. Sure. So this is a neurosurgeon based down in New Jersey. His name is Dr. Mark McLaughlin. He operates on brains and spines. Uh, he grew up in New Jersey. He was started as a wrestler in, I think, in about the sixth grade. And he was good, but he found that while his body was serving him well as a wrestler, his mind was not. And it was sort of the mental prob- mental preparation problems that were causing him problems. So he spent a f- little bit of time with a sports psychologist who helped him figure out what he should do in the final moments before he was wrestling in high school. And they came up with a routine for him, and it, he became markedly more successful both in high school and then he was a collegiate wrestler. He was a state champion, captain of his team. He's now in the Hall of Fame for that state he was in. And when he became a surgeon, it took him a little while, but after a time, he recognized, hey, you know, when I go into surgery, I want to be in that great mindset the way I was when I was wrestling. So he came up with a, a sort of a, a set of practices very similar to what he did in wrestling to get him into that mindset. 
Yeah, and I, th- I think what's interesting to me about it is is that he he made that jump, and he you know it, I, you you say actually this really funny thing that because I I would love I would have loved it if the story was like and he has the least the lowest complication rate of any surgeon ever in the universe, right? But what I, what I actually love is you said all right that may or may not be true. He's kind of you know he's he's a good surgeon, but he may not be the the absolute best in the world, but. If it were your parent or your spouse or yourself on that operating table, wouldn't you love to know that he sort of had this routine? Which I think is is telling because I think a lot of us are are you know we look at stats like employee engagement rates and other ways that most of us approach our work. And while we as customers and and stakeholders and clients and consumers, we we want to think we're getting our best from other people, the truth is we're we're probably not. And one of the reasons for that is mindset. Yeah, it's a, he's interesting and. He, you know, one of the questions when you write a book, as you well know, you often face is where did the book come from? Where did the idea for this generate? And the story behind this book really is I was not a very good high school athlete, but I played uh, football and basketball in high school. And despite my lack of success on the court and on the field, I came away from it really fascinated by what the coaches would do and what the players would do themselves to try to get psyched up before a game. And so I had, you know, I was sort of, there's rituals, there's the music, there's the pep talks, all the sort of infrastructure that would take place in the moments before a game. And as I got older, two things happened. Number one, I would run into guys I used to play football with who were now working in accounting or working in, you know, manufacturing consulting. And over conversations, it turned out that, you know, what do you do before you go into a boardroom to talk to the audit committee? He's like, well, you know, it's kind of like just before a football game, I do kind of the same sort of thing. Or, you know, what do you do before you pitch a new client as a consultant? Well, I'm, I'm doing something that's pretty similar to what we used to do in athletics. So number one, I heard from people who were actually doing this kind of thing. And number two, when I came to Harvard Business Review, I started seeing research by Amy Cuddy and by many other researchers that touched on these ideas that there are things you can do even in a professional office setting to make sure you're bringing your best self into the moments when you need to bring your A game. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. I mean, so obviously the Amy Cuddy research has been uh, much talked about and we don't need to spend too much time on that. But I, what I think is amazing is the thing that's consistent about her research and research before and after her is that feeling, right? So whether your testosterone levels or whatever change, we still don't know. Uh, but the idea that it just helps you feel better, it helps you feel more uh, engaged. And that's it's kind of, I mean, it gets to the core of the idea of psyched up, that it's getting yourself in that sort of right mentality and, and right mention. And I, actually, you know, you mentioned something really Interesting there, both of the examples that you gave, whether it be pitching in the boardroom or giving this, et cetera, are probably one of the easiest places for knowledge workers, for white collar work, for office workers to see the transition from a lot of these tools that we see in either sports or the performing arts moving forward. It's in that giving a speech idea. And you have a lot of actually really interesting examples beyond that from, from Jerry Seinfeld to Stephen Colbert to a bunch of other people on using these sort of pregame rituals before a speech because it helps dramatically. But um, I, I wanted to also mention one other element, which because I think this applies to speeches, but a lot of other things, and it's this idea of um, p- making part of that pre-speech pre, pre ritual. See, I, my sport is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I never did football or soccer or anything like that, so I keep saying pre-fight instead of pre-game. Um, but there you go. Um, but it's the idea of reframing nervousness because this is something that happens whether you're on the athletic field or whether you're about to give a speech or really whether you're about to engage in any sort of high stakes work activity. There's this idea of nervousness or anxiousness versus excitement. And part of your ritual can be that sort of self-talk that happens in that regard. 
Yeah, you raised two really interesting points there. So number one, the way I think about this is that every professional person needs to identify the use case for these kind of techniques. So if you have the kind of jobs where you can open up your calendar for the next month or two and you know enough about what you're going to be doing that you can circle the dates that, you know, this is a day when I really need to bring it and uh, – you know, my success or failure at the end of the year is going to be much more dependent on what I do on July 19th at 10 a.m. than it's going to be on the other hours of that month. Then you're somebody for whom these techniques might, uh, you know, have some utility. On the anxiety piece of it, you know, circling back to high school sports, when I started this reporting and when I had the idea for this book, I had a very simple view of what it meant to get psyched up. I thought about it as like a light switch. You would turn it on or you would turn it off. And I thought a lot of it had to do with adrenaline that, you know, that was the chemical reaction in your body that would make you amped up for for performance. Once you actually talk to the researchers and, and read the research, you come away with a much more nuanced view of it. Now I don't think of a light switch anymore. I think of the knobs in a stereo, and it's less about adrenaline, and it's more about fine-tuning your emotions. It's trying to find ways to dial back on the anxiety, to dial up your confidence level, and to adjust your energy level so that it's appropriate for the kind of thing you're doing. If you're giving a commencement address versus if you're about to fight in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, those are very different kinds of activities, so you need to get the energy that's appropriate for the right one. You know what's funny is I, I and I actually have the opposite response, right? So um, – <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm doing this wrong, and that's why I'm not a, a notable world-class level competitor. But you you talked about the need to either dial up or dial down. It's funny to me. I tend to before a big talk at a you know a big speech at a conference or whatever I'm doing to sort of promote a book or something like that. Um, I tend to not get nervous and want to turn it up so that I have a little bit more excitement and more energy, right? If that makes any sense. And then the opposite happens for me personally when I'm competing, which I don't do very often anymore, but I still do, is I actually try and like dial myself down. I'm naturally nervous, but I try and like remind myself like this isn't my life. Like nothing about my career rides on getting a victory today. Like I'm out here to, to enjoy it, to enjoy the competition, et cetera. And I'm probably not going to get hurt. So it's all fine. Like stop being so nervous. Um, now, obviously, I guess maybe if I were trying to win a world title in jujitsu, that would be great. But it's interesting to me to say because it, it came from basically looking at what are my what are the natural things that happen before I do that activity, and then what adjustment do I need to make to my own level of anxiousness? Yeah, well, what you talk about there points out that this stuff is really personal, and you can point to research findings that suggest that for the average person, this will work well and this won't work well. But every human body is different. And so um, the idea that before an event that you want to be up for, there might be some set of people who want to sort of dial themselves down. So Phil Jackson, the basketball coach, he's written about this a bit. He says that you know he's known as the Zen master because he makes his players meditate and he'd have them meditate in the locker room before the NBA championship game, an event that most people are going to try to psych themselves up for. Um, so he's a believer that, especially in basketball, there's more benefit from being calmer than what the average player might naturally be feeling. So, you know, he's sort of trying to counterbalance and it sounds like you, you approach the same thing yourself. 
Yeah, I mean, again, I think I don't. Some of it might be, you know, it's not. I think you talked about this in the book when you're. It's I think because I think it's personal, but it's also the context of the situation where it's a sport that's very hand-eye coordination. It's not like blunt force, right? It's and it's not just raw explosiveness. There's a lot of technique and there's a lot of coordination, uh, similar to I'd imagine basketball. And so that, I think there's that idea that you can get too nervous. And it, I mean, you can get too nervous in any sport, but there's a very, very sensitive level of the appropriate level of excitement to not make any mistakes, right? And that's that's kind of goal. I mean, and the other reason is I get super excited about it, and I really do have to remind myself that it doesn't matter, right? I'm 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 a grown man whose career is something other than this sport. I just do it for fun. It's sort of like I was listening to you on a different podcast, and you were joking about about golf, right? No no amount of using Tiger Woods. Or uh, or anybody else's uh, golf club. Actually, I guess Tiger Woods's golf club wouldn't help anybody right now. Um, but, but no no amount of that's going to help your game. I think I have the same mentality to to these type of competitions. Uh, of course, um, you know, if none of that works, uh, we could always use drugs. And I think you you actually have a really interesting chapter in the book that looks at okay, which of these things are actually performance enhancing and why for their effect on your mentality, which I thought was was hugely interesting, including your own little experimentation. Yeah, so um, I was interested, you know, so pharmaceutical enhancement, especially for for nervousness, um, is definitely something you encounter pretty quickly if you start looking around at how everyday people deal with performance anxiety, especially around public speaking. And I'd never, I, it's funny, I never really heard of beta blockers before I started reporting the book. And it, that emerged as a chapter very organically because I kept running into people telling me about them. Um, a lot of, you know, like, like a lot of writers, many of my friends are writers. So we tend to sit in our little cubicles writing a lot and then suddenly we have something to promote and we're out on stage all of a sudden. It's not necessarily the most natural setting for us. So I think introverts like uh, like writers tend to maybe rely on these things a little bit more. Beta blockers are basically a drug that have been around for half a century or so. They started out as a cardiac drug for hypertension. Um, but essentially what they do in simple terms is they make your body less reactive to adrenaline. So a lot of what people who get nervous when they speak, they tend to feel the same symptoms. They feel like a dry mouth. They're, uh, they'll blink a lot. They're, they'll have like lumps in their throat or they'll swallow a lot. They'll sweat. Um, all that's caused by the chemi- chemistry in their bodies and the beta blockers reduce the uh, effect that that chemistry has. And if you, you know, you're still, you're still nervous, but you're just, you're not feeling the physical symptoms of it as acutely. And that sort of prevents the downward spiral that, you know, if you're up there, you're feeling a little nervous, you suddenly feel yourself sweating, that makes you more nervous. Um, that can have, you know, very detrimental effects. So it, some people really rely on these. Some people treat them as an insurance policy. You know, I talked to one person who he said, you know, nine, nine out of 10 times I get up there drug free, I'd be fine. He's like, basically, I'm just taking this pill because I know, you know, every 10th or every 20th, I'm going to get suddenly a little panicky up there and this pill just sort of eliminates the odds of that. Well, and the other, so the other drug that I thought was really interesting that you looked at was, uh, modafinil. I think that's how you say it. Um, and the, the reason is like, I like you, I mean, job as a writer, you start to encounter, okay, what are these things for not just nerves, but also kind of brain function, et cetera. And, um, I made this huge mistake of keeping a full speaking schedule, a full teaching load and writing a book at the same time. Um, for the whole first half of this year. And I, I mean, it was funny to me because the conversation you had 
with your physician was literally the conversation I had with my wife, who's an ER doctor, saying like, hey, maybe I should maybe I should try this. Maybe I should go to the doctor and ask for this because this would make it so much easier to actually write the book. The difference is you got the script and I didn't. She would not allow me to do it. So I was as soon as you started writing about Modafinil, my, my whole sort of focus zoomed in because I was like, this is exactly what I was thinking about. And, and arguably, I mean, unless you're sort of getting nervous in the speeches thing, arguably something that a lot of people I feel like in the knowledge worker world have either heard about or are probably going to hear about in the next five years or so. Yeah, there's definitely a subculture of people who are very familiar with the modafinil. Again, I'd never heard of it until I started poking around in this area. Um, I did go to a doctor uh, and get a script for it. I was I was surprised, honestly, how easy it was. I expected I expected a lot more pushback on the modafinil in particular because it's an anti-narcolepsy drug, and I you know I do not have narcolepsy. I just was sort of burning the candle at both ends on this book project and was very honest about it. Um, I definitely came away from, you know, I only took the modafinil a handful of times. Um, I am pretty reluctant. I, you know, things would, my life would have to get pretty complicated before I would be tempted to use that again. Um, it's, it, it, you know, the times I tried it, it did definitely keep me alert and productive for a longer period of time. On the other hand, um, you know, my body and hands and were still sore from too many hours sitting at a desk. So it, it helps the mental part of it, but there, you know, there's physical parts of trying to work that it doesn't really address. Um, it did interfere with my sleep afterwards. Um, you know, I, there's part of, you know, I'm not a doctor, but there's part of me that just thinks it's unhealthy and a bad idea. I wouldn't want my kids to do it. Um, that said, it does raise ethical things. You know, if you're working in an industry and, you know, a lot of your competitors are doing this, are you disadvantaged if you're not doing it? You know, if, you know, you decided to suddenly write your your books on a typewriter while everyone else was using a Mac. You know, wouldn't that put you at a competitive disadvantage? Um, so it does raise sort of interesting ethical questions aside from the pragmatic: should you take this kind of thing to to be a better professional? Well, and you know, I was always in love with sort of the writing of Jack Kerouac when I was a teenager. So you know, I'm probably not going to go on an amphetamine binge to write a book. But you know, a modafinil. But I'm totally kidding. By the way, I'm not, I'm not not serious at all. Um, but no, I mean, I think it's interesting for, for the ethical reasons that you you pointed out. I mean, the, the first thing I, th- I thought about was high stakes college admissions, right? We already know that kids are, uh, we, well, we already know that like in medical school and law school, a lot of people are trying to seek out Ritalin prescriptions and other things to do better in those situations. It's probably only a matter of time before that extends beyond graduate school into you know, high school students thinking about college admissions or, you know, 20 something professionals trying to get ahead in highly competitive fields that are very much up or out, et cetera, which I think raises a really interesting question. Cause like you said, this is this, it's not really uh, what was that movie from a couple years ago? Uh, Limitless where, you know, suddenly you're using all of your brain, although that's a whole other myth to get into. It's not that because there are other physical things um, to think about, which, you know, I'm the interest, I'm noticing a trend here with a lot of the different tools and tactics you talked about in psyched up, which is that they, there are, there's a right time and a place perhaps to use each of them. And it's not all of the time, the way we think, I mean, this is not like a vitamin that you should take every day. This is something that, um, if you are going to experiment it, there's usually a right time and place that's determined by you and by the task that you're doing. Yeah, that's true. And I think I think two things along that nature. Um, so number one, um, some of the techniques in the book uh, seem very sort of 
public and elaborate. Um, so, you know, I, in the book, I describe what Stephen Colbert does before he goes on his show. And he's got this incredibly complicated ritual where he's ringing a hotel bell. He's going around giving hand signals to all the people backstage. He chews on a certain kind of big pen. He's staring at the wall in a certain area. He's got sort of backstage catchphrases. Very, very elaborate. It doesn't have to be that way. A lot of the, the rituals that people have to make themselves more confident are very quiet. You wouldn't know that they were doing it. So these things don't need to be you know super crazy and super public. The other thing is while public speaking and, and pitching ideas and sort of moments when you're on a stage are the most obvious use case for the, the techniques in the book. There are use cases that are a lot quieter and more private. So, you know, as a writer, I'm writing almost every day or editing almost every day. And I don't, I don't use any of these techniques every day, but every once in a while when I have something that's very, you know, it's either very nerve wracking to write about or it's a very high stakes assignment. I will do some things beforehand to increase my level of confidence. You know, I'm in a room by myself. Nobody's seeing me do it. I'll go back and I'll read a couple of things that I wrote years ago that are kind of my greatest hits to sort of remind me that on my best days, I'm pretty good at this. I have a keyboard that that Malcolm Gladwell used to type on. Sometimes I'll type on that for particularly important high stakes assignments because I've read the research that says if you use a tool that was used by a high performer, it can help give you confidence and help you perform better too. So even if you're, even if the moments at work where you add the most value, are you sitting in a room by yourself? Some of these techniques can work for you. Okay. I want to get into the Malcolm Gladwell thing in a second, but before that, I have a question I've been wanting to ask you since I read it in the book, which is, did anywhere in your research, did you uncover why Stephen Colbert's rituals are so elaborate? Like, cause, cause I imagine he didn't just sit down one day and write out a series of 18 really esoteric and awkward things. I'm sure they happen sort of one by one by one, but it just seems to me so, so weird in the collection of all of them. Yeah, no. So I, on his particular one, no, I've I've uh, I've heard him describe his rituals, but uh, I never never heard the backstory on any of them. Typically, uh, there's a uh, the scientific literature on this is called magical thinking. It has to do with the evolution of superstitions. The term that they come up with is contiguous events. So. Uh, Two things that happen around the same time, not necessarily related, but they come become related in your mind. So you wear a special outfit, you wear an outfit, and you do well on a college exam. That becomes your lucky exam outfit. You wear it every time. Um, sports is filled with people who, um, you know, wear the same uniform. Or you know, in the book, there's a chapter on music, and one of the things that David Ortiz, the Red Sox slugger, did, he had different songs he would listen to before he went to at bat, and if he got a hit at any at bat he would keep that song going until he didn't get a hit so some of it you know it's it's basically about doing the same thing the last time you were successful hmm. all right that okay so that makes a little bit of sense um okay now i promise because i want to get into this malcolm gladwell's keyboard and by the way how much like what are you charging to rent it out because <laughs> yeah <laughs> So that that question has come up. Uh, my my answer is, you know, I'm hoping this book does so well that I don't need to be relegated to renting out Malcolm Gladwell's keyboard. So. <laughs> that's that's fair, but okay. I mean, where did that that? I mean, I I, I know because it's in in the book, and I already sort of made an allusion to to golf clubs. But where did that whole idea come from, or where did we start to? I mean, it's almost this like magical artifacts version of uh, or element to being psyched up. Sure. So way back in 2012, before, long before I had 
thought about the proposal for this book, uh, I wrote a piece for Harvard Business Review about a piece of research that came out of Germany, and it was about this what they call positive contagion, which is if some someone touches an object that some essence of them rubs off on the object and affects either its value or its performance qualities. And so these researchers in Germany did this study where they had a whole bunch of college golfers who were all about the same ability, and they had them all putting from the same distance on the same hole, very, you know, very controlled environment. The only thing they differed in the setup to the experiment was they had half the golfers, as they were handing them the club, they said, oh, funny story, this golf club used to be owned by, and they said the name of some famous golfer that everybody knew about, and the other half, they didn't say anything about the provenance of the club, and it turned out that the golfers who thought that they were uh, golfing with a professional's club putted about a third better they visualized the hole to be bigger. Um, it just seemed to, and there's been other studies on that. There was a, another study that looked at people studying for an exam, being told that the last person who used that same study guide either got an A or got a C, and that seemed to affect how the next person did on the exam. So there is this this um, research base for objects that have been used by high performers. And I'm a, I'm a writer. The object that I interact with most intimately in my production is the key keyboard. Um, and so I decided to try to get Gladwell to use a keyboard that I would write the book on. See, I mean, I think this is great because, you know, the, the jury is still out on, on how solid like power posing is, but you have to do that in secret here. All you have to do is steal some favorite, you know, famous person's artifact from their home one. All right. All right. That might actually be more complicated than power posing. You're right. No, I, th- I mean, I think it's really interesting because we, I can tell you from my days as an academic, we see it, right? There are lucky hoodies and there are certain pens that are better. And like you said, with the study guide idea, and it's, it's something more than like a, a ritual. There's, and it, but, but if you ask people, they would, it's like they would almost be dismissive of it. Like there's not a, a deeply held religious belief that this pen is going to give them a good job on the, on the exam, but they're still kind of like, yeah, you know, it couldn't hurt. Yeah. And it does, you know, kind of change the way you think about these things. If, you know, you're looking for any edge you can today. And if there's a tool that can help you feel a little bit more confident, um, you know, I use this not only with myself, I try to use it with my children even. I, yet last week, my 12-year-old was attending a basketball camp run by Marcus Smart of the Boston Celtics, who's his favorite basketball player. And the deal was at the end of the week, every kid could get two items autographed by Marcus Smart. So all the kids spent a lot of the week trying to figure out what they were going to get Marcus Smart to autograph. And, you know, most of them had like posters or this, that, or the other thing. So my kid went up there and I think he did have him autograph a poster, but he also had him autograph his sneakers. And the idea is, unlike this other stuff, his sneakers are something he actually wears on the basketball court. And it'll, you know, he can just look down at any moment and remember that his favorite NBA player held those sneakers and touched them. And will it help him? I don't know, but it sure can't hurt, right? I mean, that it seems to explain the billions of dollars that Nike has made under the Air Jordan banner as well. I mean, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So, oh, go ahead. No, I think, you know, um, a lot of this stuff taken to an extreme is definitely open to parody. And if you've watched The Office, you know, The Office has already made parodies of some of these kind of things. There's a scene where uh, Dwight is going out on a sales call and beforehand he sits in the back of the car listening to sort of, you know, hair hair band music to try to get psyched up to make sales calls. And, you know, Michael Scott was sort of the, um, the epitome of the bad pep talk. Um, so, 
you know, these things can, there's an element of ridiculousness to this if we all had like seven lucky objects we're carrying around with us all the time. So, you know, there's a, you have to find the right point on the continuum and you have to use it in moderation. But, you know, whether it's something, you know, an object that's meaningful to you that you pull out on special occasions that helps you make feel a little bit more confident and makes you, you know, perform a little bit better. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think it's something people can think about as one of the tools in their arsenal. So all right, let's talk about pep talks for a second, because you mentioned you sort of you mentioned the Michael Scott pep talk. And while it's a it's a hilarious example of sort of doing it wrong, I think where a lot of people can go with that is just thinking that, you know, other than the playing field, it, there's no good environment for a pep talk ever. Right. But you actually look at some really interesting examples, both from military, but also from a, cor- a corporate example, at least sales, which is. I guess some an area where we have the famous like Glenn Gary Glenn Ross uh, pep talks too, but I mean there really is a a real use case for using pep in certain scenarios using these sort of pep talks, and it's not just in the locker room during halftime. Sure, I think uh, you know varies certainly from industry to industry, but especially in a sales environment. There's a pretty clear expectation that at certain key moments, especially around the end of the quarter, especially around new product introductions, especially at sort of kickoff meetings for the beginning of the year, that a sales leader really does need to get up there and say something that is going to inspire people to try to work a little bit harder, to try to be a little bit more excited than they might ordinarily be. Um, For the book, I was able to spend the last day of the sales month at Yelp. And, you know, Yelp, although we all just use it to check our restaurant listings, um, their business is selling advertising. And they have, you know, hundreds and thousands, I think several thousand people, most of them pretty young, just cold calling businesses all day long, trying to get them to buy Yelp ads. And the last day of the month when they're all pushing to meet their quota, they often sell twice or three times as much as they do on an ordinary day in the same way that people sort of pick up the pace at the end of a road race to try to get across that line. And the leader's words in there are certainly one of the tools they use to try to get them to up the energy level at the end of the month. Well, and it's not just, you know, those words are are what I thought was really interesting. They're not just motivational. We're the best. We're going to do this, et cetera. A lot of times they're, they're almost, they're instructional first, right? And sometimes they can even be the opposite of we're the best. They can be talking about uh, how great that sort of other team is. But that's the part I probably found most interesting was how instructional these are, because that's not the type of pep talk that we see on, you know, on any given Sunday or on Friday Night Lights or anything like that. Right. What was really interesting to me when I got into the research on all this is that I found a research. I found a couple researchers who were looking at sports and locker room pep talks. I found a couple that were looking at military pep talks, and one or two that were looking at it in a business context. And they didn't even know about the existence of the other. They were treating this as three completely disparate areas. They did never even heard of this other research. But when you look at it all as a whole, there's a lot of similarity. And probably the biggest one is the point that you're making is that um, probably the most important thing somebody giving a pep talk needs to decide is what percentage of my time and energy is going to be on strategy and direction giving, You know, the nuts and bolts of what you want the person or the team to do, uh, whether it's a sports setting, military setting, or a business setting, um, and then how much of it is the other part? How much of it is to try to appeal to their emotions, to try to get them to be more positive, more confident, more energized, more enthusiastic? Um, so there, that's sort of one of the first decisions you need to make as the as the deliverer of one of these talks is that divide. 
Hmm. No, I think that's that's really quite interesting. And and it's again this example. I mean, one of the things I think that ran through the themes that ran through the whole book is that it's not about sort of knowing how to psych yourself up in every situation. It's about knowing a bunch of these different tools and then what the right situation for you to use them is. But also if you're in a leadership role, when the right time to use it for your team is uh, and when the right context, the right type of work is. There really is something everybody can do, I think, after especially after reading the book. There really is something everybody can do in a in a work or workplace context to get in the zone, to get sort of psyched up. It takes a little bit of experimentation and knowing a lot of tools to know which one's the right one, but it's possible. Yeah, I think that's right. So one of the chapters in the book looks at the use of trash talk and anger and hostility and rivalry, sort of a whole bunch of, you know, most of the most of the emotions we think about in the book, like confidence are very positive emotions. Anger is a very negative emotion. The research suggests, especially in sports, that in certain kinds of activities, being angry, either in general or angry at your specific opponent, uh, can be a really you know useful thing to do. And there's research that shows that trash talking your rivals can knock them off their game, can motivate you to work a little bit harder. That rivalry can make people work a little bit harder. Personally, for me, those are not things that work very well. And, you know, I I think I'm at my best when I'm not very angry. Um, I don't think I have the right personality or the brashness to to effectively trash talk in many settings. Um, so I wrote an entire chapter of that book on that set of techniques, but I pretty much knew the whole time I would never use these myself. It's just not something that's in my arsenal. Yeah, so you're not the uh, the Muhammad Ali of, of journalism, I take it. All right, that makes no, sense. No, no, no. no I, I, <laughs> you know, we have the, uh, the good folks at the MIT Sloan Management Review are right across the river, and I'm never tempted to go over there and talk trash to them. Oh, well, that'd be so interesting. <laughs> I think that'd be quite funny. Or, or have someone tattoo on their arm, you know, a derogatory message to them or whatever the, uh, the fascinating use case. from It was T-Mobile, right? Um, yeah, so the the CEO of T-Mobile is a marathon. He's you know in his fifties, but he's he continues to be a marathon runner, very very competitive athlete. And the the money quote from him was, uh, "I like winning, but what I really like is making my rivals lose." Um, and he's definitely uh, somebody. He spends a ton of his time on Twitter, just lashing out at AT and T and Verizon. Um, he sees it not just as a way to uh, gain customers by making fun of and belittling the competition. He also sees it as a way to fire up his workforce, and he, you know, he's really turning, you know, mobile telecommunications into this kind of energetic team sport atmosphere, um, and it's been very effective for him. But again, he's, you know, he has the personality where he can pull that off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a fascinating case, and it explains a lot of what everyday people have probably seen in the advertising and positioning and culture of T-Mobile over the last um, several years. So it's worth reading for that. The entire book is worth reading so that people can figure out what what tool works for you, what situations best to use it. Might be a ritual, might be some form of of pep talk or self-talk, whatever it is. But I highly encourage people um, to check it out, Psyched Up, How the Science of Mental Preparation Can Help You Succeed. Dan, we uh, end every interview asking our guests the same sort of five questions to get a peek into them, not just the ideas that are in their book. So if you're ready, I want to hit you with a lightning round. All right, I'm ready. All right. What's the best advice you've ever received? Best advice I've ever received is, uh, as a reporter, I think the best advice I've ever received is go into every story, not only looking for what you need to complete this opportunity, but looking for your next thing. So the idea would be, while you're doing today's work, look for 
tomorrow's gig at the same time. Oh, I like it. So besides uh, giving yourself a pep talk and sitting down at Malcolm Gladwell's keyboard, what's an ideal work day look like for you? Um, probably a good mix uh, between writing something on my own in sort of quiet isolation that I feel not only good about myself, but I feel confident that readers are going to really enjoy and and receive value from but then the second part of the day would involve sort of fun collaboration with colleagues which is one of the joys of working at a place like harvard business review Hmm. yeah no i can imagine i totally imagine um speaking as somebody who has several friends who who are working there it's kind of funny um what are you reading right now this is an interesting one to hear all the time gosh what am i reading right now i'm reading an early galley of um a book by uh, Gretchen Rubin called The Four Tendencies, which is out in September, and I'm almost all the way through it and really enjoying it. I am almost all the way through Option B by Sheryl Sandberg and Adam Grant, uh, and I probably will be giving that as a gift to several people. And I'm carrying around but haven't opened yet a book by a Harvard Business School professor named Mihir Desai called The Wisdom of Finance, which is about how sort of the theoretical concepts of finance can influence your life decisions. Oh, interesting. Very interesting. So I'm all right. I'm going to add that one to my wish list as we go. Um, What do you believe that most people you feel like disagree would disagree with you on? Hmm. What would most people disagree with me on? Um, uh, probably a lot of the country would not agree with my politics, but that's probably true for anybody these days. Um, uh, so a lot of people will probably disagree with my dislike for modafinil, as we discussed. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I'm not sure I have any like sort of more profound, uh, provocative disagreements than those. I think that I'll be smaller things. That's fair. That's fair. Although I should say, in so I, I mean, I take it then you're also not a. Uh, not a fan of the Silicon Valley trend of microdosing too, which is uh, not even modafinil; it's straight up LSD. But yeah, yeah, that's good. I I, I was actually I did a podcast not too long ago uh, where we were talking about drugs that make you stay awake, and somebody asked me flat out, "What do you think about cocaine?" <laughs> which is not a question I ever expect on a podcast. No, I've uh, appallingly little experience with any of these kinds of drugs. So I came into this with a lot of naivete. Well, it's probably for the better. I could actually understand. I mean, I had that thought when I was reading your section on modafinil too, because you're talking about wall street traders and people that are, you know, apparently that culture is fairly famous for it as a way to stay ahead, to stay focused for longer, to stay awake longer, all of that sort of stuff. Um, so that's fair. That's fair. Um, our final question is, you know, the title of the show is radio free leader in, in your view, what makes someone a leader? I think uh, you can't identify yourself as a leader. It's really the followers who decide whether you're a leader or not. So, you know, just sort of sounds like it might be tautological, but a leader is somebody who others choose to follow. And it's not it's not a title that's bestowed on you. It's not a title you claim yourself. It's one that is um, created by other people's behavior towards you. Ah, But if you can get a pretty cool pep talk, I bet that helps. I think for some (laughs) leadership jobs, that's going to be a requisite. Yeah, there you go. Perfect. So the book, again, Psyched Up, How the Science of Mental Preparation Can Help You Succeed. I hope hope everybody listening checks it out because it really is a good deep dive into you might have known about one or two of these tools, but you're going to learn a lot more about that. Uh, For that reason, I hope you check it out and figure out which one works for you. And so, Dan, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Thank you. This was fun.